Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, this morning we're going to be concluding our four-part series that we've been in on Romans chapter 12, a series that we've entitled, Therefore. And the series is called Therefore because after the Apostle Paul spends 11 chapters detailing the, the grace and the mercy of God towards us, as he spends 11 chapters explaining the gospel and, and all that God has provided for us. In chapter 12, Paul begins by saying, therefore, and he's going to draw a conclusion. What is the appropriate, the rational, the logical response for you and I in light of what God has done for us in Christ? And we've seen that the, the logical thing for us to do is to lay down our lives before Him and have Him transform our mind through the work of His Spirit so that we might serve Him with a proper estimation of ourself and what God wants to do in and through us in His kingdom work. Um, and that we have the opportunity to live out an authentic Christian life because of the identity change that has happened inside of us. And we've seen that over all of that over the last three weeks. And today we're going to see our last installment of that series by looking at verses 17 to 21 of chapter 12. But before we look at those five verses together today, let me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for your word and thank you for um, just the joy of worshiping with your body. Father, I, I pray that you would guide us now and that your spirit would empower um, the things that I say and, and your spirit would em, empower the, the, the word that we are going to see in Romans 12 that we might understand more of what you have for us. And Father, as a part of that process, I pray that you would just protect me from saying anything you wouldn't want said. But Father, if I do say something you wouldn't want said, I pray that we would just all quickly forget it. Father, anything that I say today that you would want us to hear, I pray that we would remember it and we would believe it and we'd walk forward in it in the power of your Spirit that we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, those of you who know me uh, know that superheroes are a big part of my life right now. I've got a four-year-old son who loves superheroes, so superheroes are a big part. They're a big part of what's on our television screen uh, through movies and through TV shows and all this kind of stuff. It's a big part of what I have to step on and over as I move from one room of the house to the other as we've got all these little action figures and guys spread out. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big part of the games that my son likes to play and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, superheroes are a big part of my, of my life. And so because of that, uh, I, I think about them a lot, including when I'm preparing for sermons. And, and you might think that this is kind of a sketchy task, but uh, this is the reality of my life. And so I was thinking about some superheroes as I was getting ready for today. And, and one of the things I was thinking about was just how superheroes are able to conceal their secret identity. And what an amazing thing that is. You know, when you think about it, I mean, comedians have panned this for years, but, but the difference between Clark Kent and Superman is a pair of glasses. And yet somehow, nobody knows that the one is the same as the other. Um, you know, Batman has been, been able to protect his alter ego uh, in recent years by merely growling when he talks. 
Um, and and some, somehow that keeps people from realizing that Bruce Wayne is Batman. I'm, I'm pretty sure that somebody has figured that out, or at least they have suspicions. But who wants to confront the, the grumbling, troubled man in the corner um, who also is a black belt in karate? You know? So there, here, here's this, this scene where these superheroes are able to conceal their identities through just a nylon mask of some kind. But one of the things that's interesting, if you watch enough of these cartoons, and I certainly have over the last few months, uh, is you'll find that sometimes in really intense battle, our heroes will have their costumes torn a little bit. When going up against a, a big villain, and when they're in the, the heat of combat, there might be just a chunk of mask torn away from Spider-Man's face, revealing Peter Parker underneath. The bad guy might finally get Batman pinned down, and he wants to pull back the mask and find out who the caped crusader really is. I've yet to see the villain who wants to put glasses on Superman to try to ID him, but it certainly is in some old 1950s comic book someplace, right? Um, but, but in really intense combat, it's possible for the true identity of our hero to, to show forth through scratches and cuts in their armor. And I think that's especially appropriate for us today as we look at Romans chapter 12. Because in Romans 12, verses 17 to 21, we see that the Christian life has some combat associated with it. There will be times where we're in struggles with other Christians. There's times where we'll find ourselves at odds with a world that wanted to kill our Savior. And because of that, because we're in a world where there are, is some combat, where there, a world where there is some fighting, there will come times where we might be wounded a little bit, and our outer shell of the flesh might pull back a little bit, and we are called upon to respond in some way. And in Romans chapter 12, what we see is when, when, when our outer shell of the flesh is pulled away in the midst of combat and conflict in this world, that what people should see is our true identity on the inside. And as believers in Christ, our true identity on the inside is, is not just us and our family and our experience, but our, the true us on the inside is actually marked by the presence of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I, I read this verse often because I, I love it so much. I think it, it embodies so much of what the New Testament teaches about life, but it says this. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And what Paul is saying is at the core of his identity... God has transformed him, and so the person of Christ is actually present within us. And when we are experiencing combat, when we're experiencing conflict, when we are wounded by others around us, and, and our mask is torn back a little bit, what people should see is not our flesh. What people should see is not our sin. What people should see is Christ himself. And we're going to see that laid out for us today in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. So if you've got a Bible, open to Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. As we look at this today, we're going to see three things, three things that 
show forth through us that reveal our identity in Christ when we're in the midst of conflict, when we're in the midst of combat. Well, the first thing that we're going to see is found in verses 17 and 21, and that's this. We're to respond to wrong with right. We're to respond to wrong with right. That's a very straightforward idea. It's found throughout the New Testament, uh, and it's certainly found in verses 17 and 21. In verse 17, Paul says this. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What he's saying is, if somebody does something that is evil to you, somebody comes after you and attacks you verbally, tears you down, somebody in your workplace derides you because of your faith in Christ, somebody uh, passes over your child for something they deserve out of deference to somebody else, whatever it is that is evil around us, that we're not supposed to take that evil and see it as an opportunity to respond doing something evil in return, but that we're to do something right in return. We're supposed to do something that is, is honorable. We'll, we'll unpack that a little more and see what that means here in a moment. But the idea is that when evil is done to us, that we don't automatically see that as our hall pass, our free pass to do something evil in return, but that we would actually return evil for good. Uh, verse 21, at the end of this section, at the end of this chapter, says it this way. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think it's the very same idea that's being communicated there. See, when somebody does something evil to us, it, it's like it comes over us, it wells up within us, and it, it, it wants to direct us to do something evil in retaliation. And if, if we follow through with that, then Paul would say that we have been overcome by the evil. But the, the fact is we're not to be overcome by that evil. When something bad happens to us, he's calling us to something different. He's calling us to respond to that evil with something good. Now, what does that look like and, and how does that play out in the Christian life? I think the easiest way for us to unpack that, the, the best way for us to think about this, is to look at the life of Christ. You see, if, if Jesus is who marks our identity, when Paul says, do not respond to evil with evil, but respond to evil with what is honorable or what is good, he's actually calling us to, to have Christ's life live out through us. Because when Jesus was on the earth, he had many opportunities to respond to evil with evil. But he never took advantage of that. As a matter of fact, he always, when confronted with evil, responded with good. The most uh, clear example of this that I could think of from the life of Christ was when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can imagine Jesus is praying with his disciples, and he's got his guys there with him the night before his crucifixion, and, and he's, he's praying, and, and up walks this angry mob with, with torches and with ropes and with chains, and they, they want to arrest this man and Take Jesus before the council so that he might be sentenced to death. And if there ever was an evil action, that was it, right? I mean, the innocent man being placed in chains and carried away. Jesus was being absolutely mistreated in that moment. But how did Jesus respond? He responded by doing something good. How did Peter respond? Peter responded to the evil with evil. 
He was overcome by the moment and he pulled out his sword and he cut off the soldier's ear. And Jesus stops and he picks up the severed ear and he reattaches it in this amazing miracle. As if to say to Peter, look, we don't respond to evil with evil. Peter, we respond to evil with good. And this same Savior who responded to the evil done to him in that way in his life is the same Jesus who lives within you and who lives within me if we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And the idea is when we experience difficulty in life, when we, ex- when we are wronged in some way, when somebody does something evil within us, we are to tap into our inner Jesus, not to the inner Peter. We are to respond with the goodness of Christ, not to be overcome with the evil that has been directed towards us. And this is so tough because it is such a, a visceral response for us to respond to evil with evil. I mean, I think about it in terms of on the sporting field is, is a good place to start for me. Um, you know, if you've ever been a person who's played a lot of sports in your life, then, then you will hopefully relate to this a little bit. But, you know, when you're in a sporting event and somebody is wronging you, at least in your mind, you're being wrong. You're playing basketball and they're fouling you a lot. What do you want to do? You want to foul them too, and you want to foul them a little bit harder. You want to find that opportunity to just push them a little bit. Um, Where does that come from? It comes from this hardwired flesh that that is around me, that that wants to respond to evil with evil. And you know what? I I succumb to it more times than I want to admit. I'm I'm terribly embarrassed to share this with you, but just so you understand um, that this is something that I struggle with. But I, I was... Uh, playing basketball at the 12th Street Rec Center here in Norman uh, not long ago for, you guessed it, a Wildwood Community Church team, the pastor playing for the team, the hometown boy done right. What? And so I, I'm, I'm out there, and, and there's guys just, just hammering me all game, just grabbing my jersey and stuff. I get knocked down at the end of the game, and uh, there's a loose ball, and one of my teammates is going for it, and I just kind of grab his ankle with my, with my arm, between my, my arm and my, and my side, and you know what, I thought that would be really good. Um, at, in that split second that happened, I thought, this is, I, I deserve this. He's been holding me all game. This is a pivotal play. But you know what, it brought me zero joy. It brought me, as a matter of fact, I had to go up to the guy after the game and say, I'm really sorry. I don't know, not know where that came from. That was totally Bush League on my part. Um, would, you, would you forgive me? Um, it was it was a, it was terribly embarrassing then. It's doubly embarrassing now. Um, but you know where where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we want to respond to things done against us in kind. In reality, that that doesn't give us joy. It doesn't give us satisfaction. It just hurts us even more. Think about this in your home. You're in an argument with your with your child, or you're in an argument with your spouse, and and they they do something, say something that just crosses the line, right? And, and as people who live in the same home, we have enough material to really take somebody out, don't we? I've seen Bruce in, in a talk uh, at a marriage conference before. Hey, he wears a referee's jersey and he has a flag. He says every family needs a referee so that when somebody says something that's, that's just 
beyond the line that we ought to be able to throw a flag and say, you know, illegal use of my past or something like that, you know? It, it's just this, this, this idea, you get in these moments and somebody says something, they, they go beyond the line, they say something intentionally to hurt you. What do you want to do in return? You want to say something to hurt them. You've probably done that. I've done that. Is it satisfying? No, it's not satisfying. It's painful. Why? Why is it that we have this, these moments where we, we think that responding to evil for evil is, is going to be the best thing for us, but in reality, it leaves us hollow and empty? The reason why is we're responding out of our Peter and not out of our Jesus. We're responding out of our, our fleshly costume and not out of our true identity. See, when we find ourselves in these moments where evil is done to us, and we're we're called upon to respond. We need to just pause for a moment and just think. Just right now think. You know what? Responding to evil for evil is not who I am. Responding evil with good is who I really am in Christ. When you you have that moment, when when you right now determine beforehand that that's the direction that you're going to head. It doesn't mean that you're going to live it out perfectly because the flesh is tempting and we're all going to fall short at times. But it does mean that we understand why it doesn't give us the satisfaction that we think that it might. And it does allow us that other option in that split second when we're making that decision. I'm not going to respond this way because that's not who I am. The, The wounds of combat pull the mask back a little bit. When they do, let the world see Christ in that moment. See, in the midst of conflict, we're not to respond to wrong with wrong, we're to respond to wrong with right. That's the first thing we're going to see from this section. The second thing, though, is this. We're to make peace and not war. Make peace and not war. We see this in verse 18 of chapter 12. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. See, Paul is speaking here primarily to uh, Christians um, and their individual responses to difficulty that is happening around them. And he's calling on us individually as Christians to be people of peace, not people who are constantly making war in our relationships with others. But I think it's interesting in this command, in this statement where he's encouraging us to live at peace with all, he gives this caveat. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace. And, and, and why is that? Why is this caveat placed there? Well, that caveat is placed there for two reasons. One reason I think it's placed there is because living at peace is something that involves more than just you. Right? To live at peace, if I'm going to live at peace with Carl, it involves Carl and me. I can resolve in my life to try to live a peaceable friendship with him, but if he decides to come after me or vice versa, then our relationship is not going to be marked by peace. And so one of the things about peace is it involves two parties participating in order for there to be uh, true peace. Um, but I think another reason why it is mentioned as much as it is possible is because there are times when Pursuing peace, if we pursued it to its extreme, 
it would have peace really be our God because we would orient everything around peace. We would sacrifice all of our morals. We would sacrifice all of the, the, the call of Christ on our life in order to live a life of peace with others. It's possible if we really wanted to live at peace with everybody, we'd just be a chameleon, right? We'd just do whatever they wanted to do and, and never take any stands and never do anything. And, and that would make peace to God. And, and, and that's not what we're called to do. But what Paul is saying is, where possible, as it depends on you, if you're not violating Scripture in some way, if they're a willing participant, that you would have a peaceful relationship with all who are around you. Um, Of this passage, John Calvin said this, he says, we are not to strive to attain the favor of men in such a way that we refuse to incur the hatred of any for the sake of Christ as often as this may be necessary. Good nature should, be degen- should not degen- degenerate into compliance so that for the sake of preserving peace, we are complacent to men's sins. See, insofar as we're not violating principle like this, we are to live at peace with others. And again, the, the picture for us to understand what this looks like would be to look at the life of Christ if Jesus is the one who is residing within us, if, if, if the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever is residing within us, if that's whose identity shows forth in these wounds of combat, then we ought to look to him to see what it means to, as much as possible to live at peace with others. And you need to look no further than Jesus' disciples to understand this. See, in Jesus' disciples, there were people from various groups within Israel. These were not all a monolithic group of people by personality, by political ideals, etc. You had tax collectors like Matthew who were the sworn enemies of zealots like Simon, and yet they were a part of the same troop with Christ. How is it that there could be peace in relationship between Jesus and Simon and Jesus and Matthew, and they would all go on this three-year camping trip together, and we have no record of them killing each other? How is that possible? And the reason why it's possible is that Jesus didn't make their politics the chief issue of their fellowship. Jesus didn't make their hometown the chief issue of their fellowship. Jesus made other issues, bigger issues, so that peace could be found between very different people. And you know what, as we live out our lives on this earth, there are going to be people who are very different from us in a number of ways. There are going to be people who have different politics than us, um, who are going to worship right here in the same room together. There are going to be people that have different understandings of how their, their, their children should be schooled, homeschool, private school, public school, some kind of school they haven't even invented yet, just big, firm opinions about that, and they're going to live right next door to you, and they're going to play on the same sports teams as your kids, and we're called upon to have a, 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 an influence for Christ around us. How do we show forth Christ to people who are very different from us? I think that the answer to that is, is found in this admonition. Don't make war with people just to make war. There's plenty of things we could argue about, but why? doesn't mean you can't have intelligent conversation about things, but don't, 
take a secondary issue and make it a, a primary issue. When you do that, you're not taking an opportunity to live at peace with those around you. You're making war instead. See, Jesus says, and Paul says, that we are to live at peace with others. You know, sometimes we get into these arguments because we think that it will make us feel better if we were able to convince them that our opinion is the best. When in reality, what happens after those conversations at times, like, how did I get into that conversation? You probably had one this last week. Family in town, the political balloon just kind of floated out there, and boom, there goes dessert. As much as possible, as it depends on you, live at peace with all. See, when the wounds of combat show forth, they show forth who we really are in Christ. Third thing, let God be God. Let God be God. We see this in verses 19 and 20. He says this, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. In these two verses, we're encouraged to not avenge, or not give revenge, or not exact some kind of wrath of God on others for wrong that they have done. Now, sometimes we, we think that that would make us feel good, and we, we want to respond in that way, but he says that that's, that's not the case. That, that role is fully filled by God himself. You know, this is an amazing thing, an amazing truth for us to think about related to God. There is no evil that God will not punish. Not one evil act that God will not punish. And before you get terrified about what that means for your life and for mine, remember that in Christ, the evil that we do and the the penalty that that brings on is fully paid for, fully satisfied in Christ. But it's paid for. It's accounted for. It wasn't forgotten. It wasn't dropped away. It wasn't overlooked. It was fully paid for in Christ. And because we have a God who is able to bring retribution to every, and bring to trial every single act of evil that is ever done. God says, I've got that covered. That's not your burden to carry. I'm not having you walk around like a vigilante of wrath for me. I can handle that. And he calls us to not take it into our own hands. You know, there's, there's an interesting uh, little reference there at the end. This is one of these verses that I, I just I think is interesting. Um, but, he, but he says, instead of responding to people by issuing wrath or punishment to them, that we are to serve them and to, to love them, um, to feed them when they're hungry, to give them something to drink when they're thirsty. Um, and he says that if we do that, we're going to heap burning coals on their head. That an interesting thought. 
what in the world does that mean? Does that mean, you know what, I know how to really get you. <laughs> I know how to really get you, Carl. Is that I'm going to give you a glass of water and then God's going to punish you double. Um, no, that's not what that means. Um, but this idea of burning coals, throughout the Old Testament, burning coals are a symbol of the wrath of God. And, and really what it's saying is not that we're issuing more wrath, but when we serve somebody, when we love somebody, even if they deserve something else, then really what we're doing is we're saying, you know what, that burning coal department is God's. That, that, that punishment, that's, that's God's department. I'm going to leave it to Him. And the great example that we see for this, again, is this is what welling up outside of us in our identity in Christ is the, is the person of Christ. And you think about uh, Jesus on the night before he was to be crucified, has a last supper with his disciples. And on that, that, at that last supper, on the night before he's crucified, uh, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. All of them. Including Judas. He's going to turn him over to the authorities in just a few hours. Jesus responded to Judas's intent, Judas's action that Jesus was fully aware of. He tells Judas at the dinner, do what you do quickly. You're, you're, you're going you're gonna to betray me tonight. But even knowing that, Jesus loved him instead. Jesus was saying, you know what? This is the pattern that I'm going to demonstrate for my followers because this is who I am, Jesus says. That in response to evil, I'm not going to avenge in my own agenda, but I'm going to leave that to the timing and the place of the Lord. And he washed the feet of Judas. The same thing is true for us. Not taking thing matters into our own hands, not trying to avenge all the wrongs done to us means that we're freed up to not carry that bitterness forward. We're freed up to love people in their life today. Um, and that's, that's such a powerful thing. And this is important because, you know, there's a, a, one of these personality tests that's out there, classifies people. One of the things it tests is, are you a persister? And, and by that, a persister is somebody that has, is very values-driven. It's somebody that has a very strong sense of right and wrong, and things that are wrong really bother them. And a place like Wildwood is full of persister-type people. And it bothers us to let a wrong go because we think, that's not right. That wrong needs to be pointed out. That wrong needs to be righted. We need to correct that in some way. We need to... And you know what we need to do as believers in those moments? We need to stop for a minute and realize, you know what? God's going to take care of that. Either on the cross with Christ, he took care of it, or in the future, it's going to be taken care of. But we don't have to carry that bitterness forward. We can let that go and free ourselves up to, to truly love those who are around us. See, when the wounds of combat come, they, they tear back the mask and they reveal our identity. You know, in, in the conflict that you're going to experience in your life, what Paul is doing is he's, he's calling forth from us Christ within us. And let his example be the model that we follow. Christ 
in that piece. I'm going to invite the band to come on up now as we prepare to sing our closing song together. But one of the the things about this song that we're going to sing is it's called uh, Your Name. And it, it talks about how the Lord is our strong and our mighty tower. And, you know, we're calling forth this response to difficulty in this life, uh, the wounds that we receive, that we respond out of our identity in Christ. But one of the things that's so helpful for us as we face those kinds of difficulties, we face that kind of opposition, is that we can run to the Lord and be protected by Him in the midst of it all. So would you please stand now and join us as we sing your name together. Thank you. 